Sign up to The Economist for in-depth curated expert analysis of world events and topics ranging from business and culture to science and technology. You'll get the weekly digital edition, online-only articles, curated newsletters on politics, the markets, science, culture and China, and full access to The Economist Podcast Plus. The Economist is independent journalism for independent thinking. Go to economist.com and get your first month free. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Hi, and welcome to New Books in Middle East Studies. Today, our guest is Dr. Huda Youssef, who is an assistant professor at Denison University, and she previously served as an assistant professor of history at Franklin and Marshall College. She is a historian of the modern Middle East and the Islamic world, with a focus on cultural and social history and gender in society, with degrees from Georgetown and Duke Universities. She's the author of many articles and a new book, Composing Egypt, Reading, Writing, and the Emergence of a Modern Nation, 1817-1930, out June 2016 from Stanford University Press. Welcome to the podcast. Thank you. I'm thrilled to be here. So we always start off with a bit of a biographical question. So how did you come to the study of the Middle East? Um, yeah, what's your intellectual biography? Oh, that's a good question and not an easy one. Um, I mean, I grew up in the United States in an Egyptian family. So I think I've always been intrigued by sort of the disconnect between what I saw in the media and in you know school books and things like that and what I saw in my own family. Um, So I sort of early on got the sense, oh, there's more than one narrative and there's more than one way to think about the past and what's going on. And so I think that always sort of stuck in the back of my mind as I was growing up. Um, And then when I went to undergrad, I I had the privilege of having some really wonderful professors at at Duke um, who I I, I had one of my majors was in Arabic. So I took a lot of Arabic classes and a lot of... um, some women's studies classes and some history classes. So it was a a good way to sort of intellectually get some background on the Middle East. But then I uh, took a little bit of a detour and my major was actually in computer science. So I worked for a few years in the private sector and decided that that was not fulfilling (laughs) in the way that I hoped it would be. So um, after a few years, I, I went back to graduate school in an interdisciplinary program. And that's where I sort of fell in love again with history. And that was pretty much it. And then I sort of continued on into into uh, into a PhD program at, at Georgetown in history. So what specifically was the genesis of the idea of composing Egypt before it became a book, so to speak? Yeah, I mean, I think that there's, well, there's the big, the big sort of debate that I was having and that I was thinking about, um, which was, so I was always very intrigued by education and the role of education, particularly during this period, this transitional period between the 19th and 20th centuries, the period of the Nahda, the period of the Fendiya, right? These sort of awakening of the Arabic language or Renaissance, and then this particular group of people who are sort of seen as the makers of the modern Middle East. Um, so I was really, and you, every time you read about them and read about this period, it's, there's a lot of talk about education, um, particularly Western style education. 
So early on, I sort of latched onto that as something that was important and something that I wanted to explore. But the more I started actually doing research, the more dissatisfied I was with that as an explanation for this period. Um, Mostly because if you look at the actual numbers of people who went to westernized schools, um, for example, there are a few thousand in a country, for example, like Egypt with millions of people. And so it just sort of struck me, how could this, how could all of these changes be happening socially and politically and intellectually just on the backs of a few thousand, mostly men, right? So I was dissatisfied with education per se as sort of the main explanation for, for this period. And that's what took me towards literacy in a more broader sense and sort of re- thinking about how other people beyond just that group were engaging with these ideas even if they weren't formally educated or weren't formally literate or, you know, sort of beyond the scope of what we would consider an, uh, an intellectual or an educated person. Yeah, in particular in the prologue to the book, which a lot of histories lack, I think, um, to their detriment, you mentioned your grandmother and her story and sort of it, it illustrates a lot of these themes that you've brought up. Do you want to speak to us about, yeah. about that? Yeah, so I mean, my grandmother grew up, she was born in the 1920s, so a little bit after the period that I'm looking at, but she was never was never formally educated. She was literate because she had um, tutors who came to her house who taught her how to read and write, but she would not be considered part of this sort of ascendant educated class of people that we sort of focus on when we're talking about change during this period. But I was always struck by how much her skills, her, her, her reading and writing served her throughout her life. She loved reading. She was a bit verish. She read novels all the time when she was younger, when she was younger, by the time she was older, she was reading sort of a daily litany of Quran. So she was like reading was reading and lit and education in that sense. And the more broader sense was super important to her and her life and consequently for her family. Um, but it's just not part of the story that we tell about change and about, um, how people used education. So even as you began to speak sort of broadly about the themes of the book, I think one thing that one immediately notices is that this book sort of defies different genres. It fits into this category of intellectual history um, just because you're speaking very plainly about ideas. Mm-hmm. Um, you're speaking about reading and writing and the history of books to some extent, and these are all interlaced. Do you, would you define your book composing Egypt within a certain genre of history? Or do you find that to be sort of um, counterintuitive to the sort of history that you want to tell? Yeah, I mean, I think I'm mostly so I consider myself mostly social, a social and cultural historian. So I, I look at sort of society and culture and how things change. But at the same time, I'm very attracted to intellectual history. So I'm, and the way that I sort of taking a step back, the way I think about it is I really want to know how big ideas filter through society, right? In other words, it's not, I'm not really interested in sort of people debating with each other at sort of one level of society, rather, how do these big ideas about gender, about nationality, about nationalism, about education, how do they become part of the social life of, 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 of a community. So, I I mean, it sort of does bend genres a little. Um, I recently, I actually came across a, um, uh, a piece by Robert Darnton, and he was talking about different sort of types of intellectual history. And he mentioned one sort of, uh, category called like the social history of ideas. And I was thinking, 
yeah, that's sort of what I do, right? I sort of what I like to do is how do ideas have a, a life beyond just the intellectual debates? No, completely. Because I think, I think one thing we often get caught up in is hierarchizing ideas and looking for ideas of high quality, what we deem high quality according to our educational standards. And then we superimpose that on the past. Um, but I, 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 I feel that sometimes our goal should be to seek, um, the social histories of ideas, as, as you put it through the words of Robert Duncan, because um, it really does illustrate how thought and ideas, these things that don't have a concrete form, so to speak, um, can really move society. Um, and one thing that sort of tangentially connects to this is the idea of literacy. And I think we, we're really lucky to be sort of alive at this point in time um, in the academy because we're having all of these interesting debates in the study of the Middle East about literacy and we have nouveau literacy and we have cultural literacy um, and we're sort of throwing the definitions back and forth to try to parse out how to discuss this social history. So um, you in particular sort of have laid out several definitions of literacy in the text. Um, but one thing you're very clear about is this idea of the literacy myth. And I was wondering if you could tell us a bit about that in relation to the study of the Middle East. Uh, and then your own text, and then how you see literacy. Okay. Um, well, so first, Literacy Myth was um, an, it was an article uh, written several decades ago by Harvey Graff, and he was looking at how in the 19th century um, there was this idea, and it's still with us, I think, this idea that literacy is this social miracle that will change people, um, will make them more educated, will make them more economically productive, will transform them morally, will just sort of fix everything, right? Um, and you sort of see this idea of the illiterate on one side and the literate as uh, on the other, as sort of two different classes of people, two different, you know, ways of being in a way. Um, and that literacy has this power, inherent power, just the fact of being able to read and write will change people's lives and change societies dramatically. Um, and very, and this is very much seen in, in some ways um, in the period that I'm looking at in Egypt, although it is a lot more contested than that. There were people who were worried about what literacy could do, um, particularly for people who are not, um, who are not male and who are not wealthy, right, or but more elite. So there was some contestation about whether this literacy was really this all that was cracked up to be. But I think that it's still with us this sort of, and you hear it a lot, you know, um, that literacy will empower people. And that's just, I don't really find that that's quite true when I was looking at this period, um, that it doesn't do anything inherently. Literacy is a tool. Um, and I, I treat it as such in the book. Um, it's something that people used, but they also used it in very different ways. They didn't necessarily have to be able to read or, and write themselves to be able to use what I call literacy practices. Um, they didn't have to um, be of a certain class. They didn't have to be male. Like they could do things with the tools that they had, even if they weren't um, part of, you know, this literate class. That makes um, yeah. So, I mean, so what I do is I don't, well, to go back to one of your questions in the, uh, before, I mean, I don't define literacy. Um, I don't think, um, mostly because, um, and I mentioned this, that Arabic actually doesn't have a word for literacy. Um, there is no word that sort of corresponds with what we call literacy in English. And I think that that's actually quite telling. Um, there really was no sort of one way to be literate. You could read or you could write or you could do both or you could be educated 
which didn't necessarily mean that you were literate in the, in the conventional sense. So for example, people who are blind um, in, uh, in Egyptian society during this period, if you were blind, you often, not often, but you could become quite educated just based on oral transmission, particularly of religious texts. Um, so the idea of literacy being sort of connected with education or connected with being educated um, just didn't really exist. Um, and the other sort of example um, related uh, in, in the case of women, um, there are cases that we read about where women were taught how to read, for example, but not necessarily taught how to write. So this is sometimes called inert literacy, but that these two skills were sort of seen as separate things. They weren't just there and they didn't necessarily define a person. A person wasn't literate. Um, a person could read, a person could write, a person could be educated, a person could be a lot of different things. But the idea of literate or literacy wasn't really there. I think what the work really does well is sort of allude to without sort of complicating and over um, adopting different narratives that we've been discussing in the field right now about um, sort of Islamic knowledge, um, because we have the sources to study that and about how orality was a big element of it. And of course, orality has been misused, I think, often to cast the Middle East as this very um, traditional, for lack of a better word, society where things are transmitted orally because they don't have the technology to do otherwise, when there also is, and there was uh, a tradition of also private reading. Um, So I think that, I mean, it just, it's, it's, I think the book really sort of alludes to that and how, again, um, the idea of knowledge and powerful knowledge is, is seen in different ways. And one example, I don't, can't remember if you bring this up in the book, is, you know, um, several figures well-known into the 20th century are blind and can't, intellectual figures in Egypt are blind and can't, necess- and, and rise to positions like the rectorship of Cairo University. Um, but one of my favorite phrases that you use in the book that's, again, tangentially related to this is, is the fracturing the public sphere. And that's something that really stayed with me because I think in the Western European intellectual history tradition of speaking about the public sphere, it's always this inclusive space. But I think when you use the term fracturing of the public space, you're allowed to do more with it. Yeah, I think that it's, so when you start thinking about, so the term I use more more than literacy is literacies in the plural um, in the book. And I, I borrowed this phrase and a lot of these, these ideas from anthropologists and others who um, are part of um, literacy studies. So there's, you know, there's, there's this, you know, there is, uh, there are academics who are thinking about literacy in a very broad spectrum. And so that's where I'm really borrowing a lot of these ideas. Um, And I think it's just very applicable to this, this particular period um, in Egyptian history. Um, But what they do is um, in looking at literacies in the plural, then you start to see so the traditional, let me back up, the traditional idea of the public sphere, the Habermasian public sphere, right, the public sphere, which a lot of people have tried to expand and critique and sort uh, expound upon in different ways, was this idea of an inclusive space, yes, but one that was defined by the use of texts, um, that was defined by um, certain uh, sort of a middle class bourgeoisie community that could debate about ideas in a sort of, in a, in a, rational way was was the main idea. But I think when you start to think about literacies in the plural and the way that people perhaps could be 
for example, a reader in one case, somebody who could read, read about these debates, but maybe not write about them. Maybe they didn't write about them or engage with them in that way. Or in another case where somebody would use a scribe as a way to engage with the public. Right. And the scribal, I talk a lot about the scri- scribes because they're sort of this intermediate space where they're not really public um, in the sense that they're not disseminating it widely. But often when many of the, the petitions that I looked at were group petitions. So clearly a group of people were coming together with a scribe and they were writing out their complaints or their ideas that they wanted uh, to convey to the government. And they were doing it in a sort of semi-public way, right? And then sending it to uh, the government officials. So I think that the when you start to think about the many different the spectrum of literacy across a community, you start to see that the ways in which not everybody's engaging the same group at the same time. um, And that some of the debates that were happening were public in a sense, but they were also really important um, alternative spaces in a way. So how does this, I mean, you you mentioned the fact that the reader the, the reader is one thing and doesn't necessarily engage with the book sphere as a writer in all cases. Um, so there is, a, again, these roles are, we often think of them together because we think of reading, speaking, and writing as, as a skill set that comes together. Um, how does this relationship between reading and writing, um, these different literacies change over the 60-year period that you cover in your book? Yeah, I mean, so what I, what I notice is that there's, so this is really, a, in some ways, a story about how the emergence of print really changes this particular period. So uh, what makes this period unique and interesting, there's several things, but there are some structural changes that are happening in Egypt, politically and economically, certainly. But in the realm of um, print in particular, there's a, an explosion of the printing press, printing presses, and private, both private and public. Um, and you have, um, for example, the postal system, which um, expands literally exponentially over this period, um, and telegraphs, telegrams, and things like that. So there's all sorts of new ways of communicating with a broader public that weren't quite the same before, right? So this is what makes this period, I think, unique and worth studying. Um, A reader could be somebody who's, so for, uh, let me back up. So if somebody who, for example, sends a letter, that's a very good use of, you know, a way to use this modern technology or the newer technologies to communicate across a really wide distance. It could be a way to petition your government. It could be a way to sort of engage with a larger community. You could send a letter to a newspaper or a journal or, you know, all sorts of different things. But at the same time, it didn't necessarily mean that that person was literate. They could be using a scribe. And then that scribe would then encode their language into the letter. The letter would be sent. Then uh, maybe a reply would come back. And then they'd need that scribe again to sort of mediate and read out or, you know, the oral experience of hearing the words would be the the way a reader, quote unquote reader, would actually experience the language. Um, But at the same time, as you're starting to see more and more print become um, accessible and used by private individuals, what I start to notice is that more and more of the writing is not done by, in other words, the people who are creating the printed materials tend to be of the educated classes. Whereas older technologies like scribal technologies, it was assumed in many cases that people couldn't read and write directly for themselves. Whereas for print, which was very powerful and a very good way of disseminating information, the writers of that tended to be more from these educated classes. And you start to see sort of more you see less engagement actually by women and by people in the lower class in printed petitions and in printed materials 
they are certainly receiving the material they were as they're receiving it as readers, but they're not necessarily part of the writing process, if that makes sense. What role does education have here? Um, I mean, education in this period is still rather limited. I mean, people, it's a political issue and it's an issue that people are fighting. Um, this is a period, uh, most of this period is under when the British were uh, quite involved in the occupation of Egypt. So there, it becomes a nationalist issue um, in terms of having schools and encouraging schools and encouraging literacy um, as an ideal. So it becomes more and more part of the ideals of the community that we need to have literate Egyptians because this is going to create, you know, a more prosperous nation, a more unified nation, more morally upright nation, all of these kinds of ideas. So education becomes very, very important as an ideal. But what I know, what I notice as I look at sort of, you actually look at the numbers of schools Public governmental education, which was considered the highest caliber at this period, was very, very limited still. And we're talking about, you know, less than 100 schools for most of this period that were run by the run by the government. Most of education at this period was done by um, private enterprises, either through missionaries um, and increasingly through nationalist organizations. But the real explosion of education during this period is actually in the Qutabs, which were which are sort of which is kind of intuitive. Um, but the Qutabs would have been like the more traditional um local schools that were usually run by religious figures. And they were really focused not on the kind of literacy that the, the people who are idealizing literacy were talking about, but rather religious, you know, texts and religious, uh, religious education. Now, I think a lot of people forget that some of the foremost figures of 20th century um, Arab or Middle Eastern history is, you know, these individuals come from the Qutabs and that's where they're, they receive their grounding and then they go further than that. And it does lay a foundation that's common to many peoples across um, the region. But um, because we're, we've been speaking a lot about these um, inequalities, uh, I sort of wanted to look at inequality or perhaps lack of symmetry between um, it, linguistically. So with the Arabic language, one thing that I'm always struggling to define to people, especially when I teach, is what the Arabic language is and how it's so hard to write sometimes in Arabic because we speak one way and we write another way. Or you go to a lecture um, of someone from a different part of the Arabic-speaking world and you can't necessarily understand it because they're speaking a different dialect with a slightly different syntax. So what role does language play here? Because we have the case of classical Arabic or Fusha, or modern standard Arabic, what have you, um, and then Egyptian colloquial dialect. So how does that sort of play a role in um, sort of the emergence of reading and writing as, as, as a more common tool? Yeah, this was a really big, it was a really big debate during this period um, of what to do with Arabic. <laughs> what, like, what do you do with the fact that you have this classical tradition which and when I uh, when I talk about schooling and the way that Arabic the way that Arabic was changing or the way that not Arabic necessarily was changing but the way people were changing how they taught Arabic in this period one of the big things that they had to struggle with was classical Arabic was not really meant for mass education right I mean it was sort of this lifelong pursuit that you took that, you know, people were studying it until they were, you know, in their 60s or 70s, right? Like this was not something that you mastered in, you know, um, you know, 10 years of schooling or something like that. It was really a, a language, I think, mostly of mastery that you sort of developed over time. Um, but when you start having this ideal of we need to get everybody educated and we need to have 
you know, everybody go to school and they need to all learn Arabic, um, then the question of how do you do this with a, you know, how do you take this classical tradition and, and, um, and make it more palatable for this, this particular application. So there was a lot of debate about this. There are people who were advocating simplifying the script. There were people who were saying, for example, like, you know, the vowels um, that we add on top of the letters, maybe making them part of the word so that it would be easier to read. Um, Others were advocating Latinizing the script, right? The way that Turkey eventually did with, um, with Turkish. Um, And some were saying, yes, we should just move to the, 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 colloquial, just use the colloquial as the language of, of education. I mean, in the end, what they come to is they start using modern, the, the ideals coalesces around the idea of modern standard Arabic, right? A sort of simplified version of the classical um, system. Um, but I think that it's still, I mean, to this day, this is still a very open question. It's a, still a huge debate within the Arab, Arab, Arabic speaking world about whether that is really beneficial for people or not. And I think that there is I mean, I don't have a particular feeling about it, but I do think that this is, it's part of this debate of what language is for um, and whether, whether there's the tool, whether there's the will and the uh, ambition to really make Arabic a language that everybody can learn Um, because it is quite, I mean, it is a difficult language to a certain extent, um, but at the same time, part of the reason that, educational rates and things like that are low in the Arabic speaking world is not necessarily just because of the language. It's also because of politics and economics and other reasons as well. So it's a, it's a debate that's still, I think, raging um, in the Middle East to this day. Now there is really an issue of inclusivity and exclusivity when it comes to the to to speaking Arabic and the Arabic speaking world. Um, To what extent do you engage with, for lack of a better word, the West, because I think English to some extent is displanting Arabic in certain parts of the world. Um, And then, of course, when you produce media, are you including other Arabic-speaking countries if you use the colloquial dialect? Because, of course, for example, a lot of people from the Middle East complain that they can't understand North Africans and vice versa. And there's, I mean, all this language about inclusivity and exclusivity folded into that. And sort of getting, continuing with that theme, I was wondering one thing you mention, and, and because you've brought it up continuously throughout this discussion, um, is the issue of gender. And I think um, you're particularly good at highlighting the fact that literacy, it is a tool, as you said, but it's also a dangerous tool to the mind of yeah. men. I mean, I thought that was, this was actually um, one of the first, one of the first pieces of one of the first sources I have ever found on this topic and that really piqued my interest, particularly about this idea of gender was um, there was like this, I think it was 1899, this fatwa written in Baghdad um, called the, uh, I forget the word, the exact title, but it was essentially a, a fatwa about how it's not a good idea for women to write in particular. Um, and this particular scholar uses the example of Egypt and the colonial influence in Egypt. And he goes on and on about how there's no real religious reason why women couldn't write, but that there were all sorts of social dangers for women writing. Um, and I, it just very much struck me. I, I found it just by luck in uh, the Library of Congress. And ever like that really did start me thinking about how literacy can be uneven and be seen as dangerous for, for certain classes and um, certain groups of people. So, I mean, during this period, there's a big debate about whether is literacy really, I mean, before it becomes 
this goal, which it really does become a real goal of the Egyptian government and of reformers by the 1920s. Before that, there was a real debate whether really do it, does everybody really need to re- learn how to read and write in particular? Um, reading, people sort of thought that was okay, but writing was seen as sort of this more dangerous imposition into the public, into public life. Um, and if women were supposed to be uh, secluded, then what did it mean to be a writer? Um, so there was all sorts of debates about whether writing should was appropriate for women, um, whether writing was actually maybe more appropriate for women because it allowed them to um, convey their ideas without necessarily having to physically move, you know, into the public. So it was a really fascinating sort of way of looking at um, the way that literacy is was not seen as an even or, or unmitigated good. Um, there were definitely ideas about whether you could be using reading things that were dangerous, certainly, but whether writing itself could be a way of um, encouraging vice, essentially, uh, particularly for women. Yeah, that more that moral undertone, I think, is something that unfortunately sort of echoes throughout history. Um, to sort of switch gears, because you mentioned the fatwa that you found in the Library of Congress, I was wondering if you could tell us more about the sources for this, because I think that's something I think a lot of academics do is we sort of flip to the back and look very quickly at, it's just, it's sort of, it's, you try to reconstruct the project in your mind. I think we spend a lot of time playing with footnotes. If you could tell me more about the sources for this, because I know you used a lot of printed published materials, but at the same time, how you use them and how you used unpublished and archival materials. I mean, so I was really fortunate that I stumbled on so many, I mean, I think all research is partly luck, um, part luck. Um, but I was really fortunate to find some really wonderful bodies of information. So yeah, I do use journals and I do look at, particularly when I'm talking about how, um, how, how the intellectuals saw literacy and why the debates about literacy, those were almost too easy to find. I mean, they were everywhere. They're in journals and newspapers and books. And I mean, every, almost every intellectual Muhammad, from Muhammad Abdu to, you know, Malik Hefni Nasif, who was a, an Egyptian feminist, all of them talk about Arabic as an important and literacy as an important part of their reformist agendas. So the idea of literacy was almost every, was, was ubiquitous. Um, so finding sources for that was not particularly difficult. However, finding sources for how people actually use literacy was more difficult. Um, in other words, how do you gauge something, particularly if I'm looking at literacy, not just as reading and writing, but sort of the spectrum of literacy from how do illiterate people use literacy? How do semi-literate people use literacy? That's where it got a little bit more tricky. Um, and for those, uh, kinds, those kinds of, that kind of information I used, um, from the archives, I used, um, petitions. Um, so these petitions that were written by scribes primarily, um, they were just really fascinating and I, I hope to use them more in the future, but they have, they're just this very fascinating look into how everyday people were attempting to use, um, the government or trying to appeal to the government for particular needs. Um, so the petitions in the archives were exceptionally helpful. Um, and then I use anecdotal sources. So like I use literature where they talk about different people and how they used letters and how they accepted letters and how they sent letters, even if they themselves weren't literate. And then the last thing I use are sort of um, quantitative data about postal rates um, and how. So one of the things that I noticed, um, which I think sort of illustrates how prevalent literacy was, even if people weren't literate, was the fact that the literacy rate rises during this period. It grows like three times, three, like threefold over the, the period that I'm looking at. However, 
the postal, the amount of postage that was sent during this period grows six times. So it doubled the rates. Um, and so it's not that there were, you know, if you look at official literacy rates, only a fraction, you know, of the Egyptian population could read and write. However, there were millions and millions and millions of pieces of mail that were being sent. Um, so it's a way of sort of seeing how literacy was actually being used. And my premise or my assumption there is that you didn't have to be literate to be using the postal system. You could go to a scribe, you could find somebody who could read and write for you. Um, and that this was a way that people were using literacy, even if they themselves weren't um, educated. So you mentioned that um, you were hoping to use the scribal, um, was it the petitions in the future? So I was wondering if you could give us a bit of a teaser. What, what's up for you next? What are you currently working on? What do you hope to work on? Well, I'm working on a, right now I'm working on an article um, about a, so when I was looking at the petitions, I found a, a particularly interesting example of a, of a woman who wrote several times to the Egyptian government um, over the period of like five years. And she, I mean, her, her letters are great um, because, I mean, I say her letters, they were clearly scribally, she clearly used a scribe because they're each in different handwriting. Um, so she was an illiterate woman from Shibinikon, so like sort of not from Cairo or Alexandria, from the more more, more provincial part of the country. Um, and she describes sort of the ups and downs of her life over these five years and the different ways that she's trying to move her family out of poverty um, into sort of a more middle class lifestyle. And she uses education and she talks about land. and she, So it's a really fascinating sort of view into um, the life of a non-elite a person um, during this period. So that's that's one thing that I'm working on. And then the other thing I'm thinking about, but I haven't quite started, is I'm thinking about, um, I've been thinking a lot about, again, these ideas that sort of filter through society and how they become so accepted. Um, and I've been thinking a lot about Qasem Amin and his, his ideas and his work. And I've over the years, I've been collecting responses to him. So people who have been responding to Qasem Amin um, because his work did create a very big, um, a, a very big wave of uh, books and articles and journals and things like that. So I've been collecting those responses and thinking about how to think about how his ideas become, um, to a certain extent, accepted and which of those ideas were not. That's so necessary because I feel like people throw Qasim Amin's name out just to make any, to make all sorts of arguments. And I think having a grounded study in how he was received and how people engaged with him is really necessary. Did you collect these um, sort of, are these published sources or did you also find these in the archives? Um, most of them are published. Most of them are published, but a lot of them are quite rare. <laughs> so, you know, you'll find one copy somewhere. <laughs> um, so, and then the other places in the archives, um, a lot, the journals of the time, right? the, the newspapers of the time, um, which are the, the best collection of them really is at Dar Qutub in Egypt. Um, so that's my next project, hopefully. Congratulations on the book. It's so wonderful. And I hope it really does create the impact that it had on me and other people and other readers. Um, and thank you for the interview. Thank you. I really appreciate the time and for your, for your wonderful questions. 